It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and we're going to add a whole new feature uh, on assaults and breaches. <laughs> yes, it was a big week, including 64 fixes from Microsoft. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 296, recorded April 14th, 2011. Your questions... Steve's Answers, number 115. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com slash security now. And by MailRoute, a secure hosted service that filters viruses and spam for companies of any size. Save 10% on the life of your account. Try it right now at MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now. Yes, I'm back in the studio. Steve Gibson is back at his secure fortress, his secure undisclosed location. And we are going to discuss the latest security news, privacy news, and answer your questions, too. Good morning, Steve. It's been such a busy week. We have lots of news to cover and actually a new section added to our, you know, in, in my own mind, our, our listeners wouldn't know, but I do have an outline that I produce every week, and it's got you know, major section headings. And I normally, we have security updates and security news. I've decided as a consequence of this week and actually get a clue from what's been going on recently, we now need an attacks and breaches section. Holy cow. Because, um, I mean, there was a Texas size screw up in Texas by Texas. Um, the Adobe's got news. Uh, WordPress got hacked. Um, and there was a third one or a fourth one. Um, uh, I love it. Oh, and Barracuda Networks, a, a very large networking security company, got themselves hacked when they when they turned off their own firewall by mistake. Oops. So, lots of lots of interesting news this week. And of course, it's a Q and A episode, so we've got uh, uh, some great feedback from our listeners. And to not share. to mention, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, a record number of fixes from Microsoft on Pest. Yes, it is 64. I wonder <laughs> if they tried to make it uh, two to the power of six. As long as I it's not 128 next week, next month. Uh, <laughs> and 256 the month after. That could really get out of hand. Yeah, but they did fix some long-standing problems that we'll talk about. So, um, yes, we just had, we, it was a record-breaking Patch Tuesday. Well, let's, before we get started, I do want to thank, we have some great sponsors, including a new one for the show. We talked about it last week. We're going to get Steve. Steve's the last remaining person who does not yet subscribe to Netflix. 
we're gonna get we're gonna get him to get a Netflix account by hook or by crook, and I think that's the main reason they have this ad on the show, <laughs> just to get you, Steve. Net, actually, I figured uh, when they first came to, I've been trying to get Netflix on for ages, but of course by now I would say every single one of you is probably a Netflix subscriber. If you're not, please try it free for thirty days. Netflix.com/slash/twit. Uh, it is, of course, as I think you know, the the idea is it's DVDs by mail, and as little as one business day, you subscribe uh, to uh, one, two, three, or four DVDs at a time. As you can see, I have five DVDs at a time, so I have three Smothers Brothers comedy hours uh, uh, shows. I've got The Painted Veil and Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Those are the discs. But the beauty part, and, and you do this in a queue, by the way, so when you send a disc back, they immediately send you the next disc and they take from the top of the list you can read order your list there are applications of course for the ipad and the iphone that let you make this very easy let's say i want to see snakes on a plane next i just press the top button it moves whoop right up to the top and that's going to be the next disc i get when i return one of these smothers brothers episodes things like that but that's the disc business and in the last year netflix has really taken off with instant streaming the ability to find a movie and play it immediately. You still have a queue if you want, but frankly, all you have to do is go through the Watch Instantly tab on your Netflix account, and you will see there are tons of movies. All right, for instance, I just watched the Masterpiece Theater classic, Downton Abbey. I just adored it, and I'm going to give it five stars. Now they give me recommendations. They say, well, if you loved that, you'll love Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes. No kidding. Just awesome. All Creatures Great and Small loved it. But I never saw these Inspector Lindley mysteries, so I'm going to add them. And look, it's got a play button under each. I can watch them right now or add them to my instant queue. These are movies. You don't have to wait for the disc. All of this, all of this is available for instant viewing. And I have to say, that's a revolution. Have, did you see Hot Tub Time Machine? What a funny movie. If you haven't seen it yet, sure, you can add it to your DVD queue. Get the Blu-ray version for super high quality. Or you can watch the HD version by just pressing the play button. This is a funny movie. Uh, John, you must have more hours in your day. Up somehow you know what I do? I do it at night. When I get home, I'm so tired. Uh, and I get home and I turn on a movie. And, of course, I open my laptop. And I can answer. So you're multitasking. I'm multi. I can answer oh, okay. email. I can get some stuff done. But I like to have something, especially after a hard day, something funny running in the background. Yep. The story in this is great. John Cusack discovers that the hot tub at their resort. He and his best friends go back to the resort where they spent their uh, their youth. They discover that the hot tub sends them back in time to 1986. And it, I mean, if you like the 80s, you'll love this movie. Not for kids. It's an R-rated movie, but such a funny movie. And you can watch it, absolutely watch it instantly just by uh, pressing this Play Now button. It is so fun. There's so many great movies here. I, I just want you to visit Netflix.com slash twit. Start that 30-day trial in every category. Watch, look, go, go look at the TV shows because more and more TV shows, entire, entire seasons are on here. If you've got kids, Phineas and Ferb. Uh, if you like music, Glee. Uh, this is just fantastic. And you know what's fun? When you add stuff to your DVD queue, they also add it uh, to your uh, instant queue if it's available for instant watching. For instance, I uh, loved this movie, Gangs of New York. One of my favorite movies. Oh, see, i got two movies now I'm going to watch tonight. Netflix.com slash twit. 
Add a Netflix subscription to your queue. And you know what I did? I think this is great. If you already have Netflix, don't, don't forget they have a gift certificates. You could actually subscribe for a friend or family member. I give my mom this every year on her birthday, a year's subscription to Netflix. It's inexpensive. It's easy. They send her an email, and she loves it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Netflix.com slash twit. Patch Tuesday, Steve. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so this was, this most recent Tuesday, a record, another, we have been setting records, and like in order to keep setting records, they have to keep getting worse and worse. Um, and this one did. <laughs> it's not a good record to set. <laughs> it's, no, it's really not what you want. Um, 64 known security flaws were patched. The good news is the per that persistent MHTML flaw which we've talked about a number of times, which was being actively exploited in the wild, and which Microsoft, they were, took their time fixing this. I think we missed a prior Patch Tuesday, so it's been more, it's well over a month. And remember that this was the one where you could, if you saved a, a, a page that had scripting in it, then uh, in, in a web page archive, which is an IE-only format, then this is the um, it, it, MHTML stands for MIME HTML, which allows a single file to contain multiple assets of a web page. And this was where the problem was. So the idea was that... Um, it's there the was web a, archive, right? Yeah, the web archive, which allows it's Microsoft's way of bundling everything, right. all the different images and when you and save a stuff. site, it says that save a site, you get a web archive. Right, you're not just saving the text though; you're saving all of the parts of the page um, in in this single file. And so they had a mistake in that, which they finally fixed. They also fixed the way that they were owned uh, in the pwn to own oh, competition. Um, that got fixed, and we also referred to. And an SMB flaw, the server messaging blocks flaw. SMB, you know, most of us know it as file and printer sharing. And everyone made a lot of worry about that when this was unveiled. I told our listeners, well, okay, it's a concern on a local network. But firstly, most ISPs are blocking those ports, the SMB port, which is 445, preemptively because of the long-standing history of problems before Windows had a firewall and Windows now for three versions, the XP after service pack 2 and Vista and Win7 have all had firewalls that are that are there and on by default. XP's original firewall was there but not turned on as Microsoft sort of creeps forward and adds security features to their OS. So that would have protected people, and being behind a router keeps you from being, you know, being safe from incoming unsolicited attacks over that port. So the real problem was local networking. If something got into a corporate or a personal uh, network, it could use that to spread among the machines within that network. So that's also been fixed, in addition to 60 other things that are, you know, just your typical, you know, Windows and Office sorts of problems. So we won't go into enumerating them all because people will, you know, fast forward. Well, in the, in the interest <laughs> of fairness, I might point out that I just came in and I have a security update from Apple, too, on all my OS X machines. Their second update of the year uh, ah. came out. They don't do it on a schedule, but this one uh, fixes Safari, which I imagine has to do with that pwn to own contest or maybe something more. 
and uh, also a number of security fixes. Apple is not as uh, forthright uh, about what's going on as Microsoft is, but you should apply that update as well. Now, I almost have an update. If if we had the hot tub time machine, Leo, I'd, I'd have... <laughs> I'd have an update, which is expected tomorrow. That's what we need to go forward. Yeah, that's right. We could we could prospectively warn listeners of coming problems. Wouldn't that be good. Uh, I would be. This would be a hot podcast in that case. <laughs> Not that this isn't. Here's but, what's going to uh, happen tomorrow. The hot the hot tub would heat us up further. So, yep, yep. anyway, uh, there will be. It's expected that Adobe will be redu re uh, releasing a fix for a new zero-day exploit. And I've got to take my hat off to Adobe. They may not be holding to this ridiculous quarterly update cycle. Well, in fact, you know, they haven't from the moment they announced it. Mm -hmm. But they really do respond quickly. This zero-day flaw came, was, first came to surface early this week. And immediately there was a security notification, and just this morning they've said they're they're working to get it fixed tomorrow. Um, so, uh, in our attacks and breaches category, uh, this is where I put this. Uh, it's it affects all versions of Flash on or all current versions of Flash across all platforms, um, and we are expecting a fix on. Tax day, uh, although I guess we get a deferral, don't we, until Monday because it's on a fr tax day is on a Friday, so it does you don't really have to have things postmarked until uh, what 15, 16, until the 18th, I think. So, but otherwise, um, Adobe's supposed to be getting this thing fixed, and Brian Krebs, uh, our a well-known security blogger and and researcher and follower, who we've spoken of often, wrote something that I thought was interesting in his own analysis. He said, "It's not clear." how long attackers have been exploiting this newest flash flaw. But its exploitation in such a similar manner as the last flaw suggests the attackers may have a ready supply of unknown, well, to everybody else, unpatched security holes in flash at their disposal. And his point is that essentially this, this one just was slipped right in. I mean, slipstreamed, just moved right in and replaced the, the, the prior exploit, which Adobe patched, and now there was another one, which, uh, and, and frankly, given the fact that so much code was written um, on the f to, to create Flash prior to any real focus on security. I mean, I'm, I'm letting Adobe off the hook a little bit. It's really, you know, they're big enough. kind of you, actually. They are, they're big enough. They really ought to have their act together more than they do because um, this is really causing problems. Well, we know it's causing people problems because RSA lost their keys thanks to the prior one. Um, so, yeah, not good. Texas. Get a load of it. <laughs> Get a load of this. Texas. The state of Texas itself revealed oh dear. that the personal information of three and a half oh. million citizens, oh. including their names, their addresses, and their social security numbers, oh. no, and more, has been exposed to the public. Oh. Um, Ars Technica. Uh, summarized some of the news, and, and Ars Technica wrote, according to Texas State Comptroller Susan Combs, the data wasn't exposed by a hacker or a group of vigilante script kitties. 
It ended up on a state-controlled public server <laughs> after having been passed around between various state agencies. Okay, that doesn't sound good either. <laughs> That's not good. Here's a hard drive you might want to see. Oh, the data came from the Teacher Retirement System of Texas. The Texas Workforce Commission and the Employees Retirement Systems of Texas, all of whom transferred the unencrypted <laughs> data oh, against state policy, but, oh, well, data is data, between January and May of 2010. But now here's the best part, kids. <laughs> the information was only discovered on the public server on March 31st of 2011 meaning it has been available for almost a year. Almost a year. Ding, 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 ding. You're a winner. <laughs> <laughs> the world's said, longest security breach. Oh, Combs said that other data, like, get this, date of birth and driver's license numbers oh, boy. had also been exposed to varying degrees. Mm. And I did go back and look at the original source documents, and, and, and she said, well, but they were all kind of run together in a big stream. Oh, yeah, it's computers like, okay, can't figure that out. Exactly. That's not difficult to Nitwits. parse out Nitwits. that information. She said, she said, finally, I want to reassure people uh -huh, yeah, yeah, that the information was sealed off from any public access immediately after a year. No, after the mistake was discovered, and was then moved to a secure location. Well, big deal, Combs said in a statement. Quote, we take information security very seriously, and this type of exposure will not happen again. Well, uh, uh, okay, thanks. That's until, reassuring until it, until it does. Until it does. Jeez. Yeah. So, I mean, if a bad guy has your social, your address, they don't well, really need your DOB, your but now they've got that too. Your name, your social security number, your date of birth, your address. Um, well, here's I mean, the message. It, it, if you were in those databases, the Teacher Retirement System, the Texas Workforce Commission, and the Employee Retirement System of Texas, in other words, if you work for the state of Texas, uh, <laughs> you should be very, you should be on fraud alert right now for your identity theft. Yes, I would say that's exactly the right, the right takeaway from this is this is all the information required to perpetrate identity theft. So, you know, people impersonating you, um, uh, who are like, for example, applying for credit cards, applying for uh, various types of, of accounts. Uh, the good news is those applications are generally caught by the, the major credit screening bureaus. And so it, well. it would be worth Well, but you know, it's, it's one thing to check is to see whether there, are, there have been uh, applications or queries against those that were not yours or, hey. or that were not people you were, that you were applying for for accounts and credit from. I mean, given the incredible breach uh, yeah. from, from oh. Texas, I wouldn't count on this, but here's what Texas should do, is notify all their employees and help them to uh, protect themselves by putting fraud alerts on all of their uh, um, accounts. Uh, accounts on Experian and uh, Transmed, you know, all of the all of the three Tra of the... Uh, TransUnion. TransUnion, Experian, I can't remember the, the third one. But anyway, um, no, that's ha this happened at uh, Tech TV. Uh, they weren't sure, but they thought maybe some data had been released uh, from the payroll system. And they, in, in, on our behalf, 
went to those three credit unions and said, this is what's happened. You have to have an excuse because credit unions don't like to do this because then they can't issue credit cards randomly. Uh, <laughs> so you have to have an excuse. But if you say, look, this has happened, if Texas goes to those uh, three and says, if this has happened, uh, please put fraud alerts on these accounts, um, they will. And I think and the nice, this is the, the least and, they could do. And the nice thing, data. Uh, the nice thing about this, Leo, is they have all the data. They've got the database of all the people's names and addresses and so forth. So they could just hand this over exactly. to the credit bureau agents exactly. and say, "Okay, we have three and a half million people. We'd like to put fraud alerts." Right. Experian, for. TransUnion, trans, and an Equifax. Ah, uh, uh, Equifax. Equifax. Right. Uh, that's something anybody, everybody should know about. You can go to all three of them and say, I want a fraud alert placed on my account. It makes it very hard for you uh, to get a loan because the people who are trying to get the loan on your behalf can't just run a credit report on you, but it also makes it very hard for a third party with that information to get a fraudulently issued credit uh, card. So very important. Yeah, and I think you're able to, you're able to ask for a free report at least once, like a, year. once a year. Once a yes. year. Credit so reporting bureaus, not credit unions. Credit reporting bureaus. Thank you. Right. TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. I think. Of yeah, and I've, I've, um, I did something happened to mine a while ago where someone, it wasn't identity theft. I can't remember. It was a credit. I lost my credit card. You know, got loose on the internet through someone I purchased from, uh, who consequently had you know my name and address and and so forth, and. Um, someone had something sent to a different address, like, you know, to them. And that's what raised the flag. I ended, ended up all getting resolved and everything. But I remember then pulling reports from the, the credit reporting agencies at that time just to make sure that there had been nothing else going on. So as a wake-up call, you can do it once a year, and it's worth just going through yes. and seeing if there's anything that, that looks strange that, it, that isn't at your own activity. There's a website called fightidentitytheft.com that has an explanation of how to do fraud alerts. I, I am a subscriber to a company called LifeLock, mm -hmm. uh, which used to do this. And uh, the problem is that Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion don't want to do this because what they really make their money on is selling your information to companies to issue you credit cards, yep. which they no longer can do if you have a fraud alert. Uh, so they actually blocked LifeLock from doing this, which is unfortunate, because LifeLock was just turning it on every 90 days because it expires in 90 days ah, automatically. Nice. And that was a, a great feature. And yes, it meant when I uh, wanted to refinance, I had to jump through some extra hoops so that the loan uh, office could get my information. I did not mind that. Yeah, but so what? Compared so to the what? Secu yeah. security. Yeah. I wish I could have a permanent fraud alert because I don't want credit card offers in the mail anyway. Yeah, that ought to be done. Yeah, it should be automatic. So WordPress on our list of 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 a very busy hack week. Um, the the WordPress hosting company, which is I think it's automatic with two T's. Yes. I thought I thought the first time I saw it, I thought that was a typo. No, because it's, it's Matt Mullenweg's company. He's Matt. Get it? Automat. Uh, yep. Yep. And in fact, I have a quote from him in his, in Matt's own blog, the founder of WordPress. He said, "Tough note to communicate today. Automatic with two T's had a low-level root break-in. <laughs> yeah, oh. to several of our servers." And potentially anything on those servers could have been revealed. 
We have been diligently reviewing logs and records about the break-in to determine the extent of the information exposed and resecuring avenues used to gain access. We presume our source code was exposed and copied. While much of our source code is open source, there are sensitive bits of our and our partners' code. Beyond that, however, it appears information disclosed was limited. Based on what we've found, we don't have any specific suggestions for our users beyond reiterating these security fundamentals, which are coming from Matt, but they will be very familiar to our listeners. Use a strong password, meaning something random with numbers and punctuation. Use different passwords for different sites. If you have used the same password on different sites, switch it to something more secure. Tools like 1Password, LastPass, and KeyPass make it easy to keep track of different unique logins. Our investigation into this matter is ongoing and will take time to complete. As I said before, we've taken comprehensive steps to prevent an, an incident like this from occurring again. If you have any questions or concerns, please leave a comment below or contact our support. So it, it is... I mean, the, the refrain we always hear is, oh, well. Never uh, happen again. Yeah, we're really sorry, but <laughs> we learned our lesson, and it's never going to happen again. It's like, well, yeah, okay. I hope that's true. Wouldn't it have been but, nice if uh, companies, states, government agencies would learn the lesson from the other guy instead of letting it have to happen to them? To them, yes. Yes. Jeez. And finally, Barracuda Networks, which may be a name not known to our listeners. You know, it's not like Cisco or Net or um, Netgear or D-Link, or you know, because it, it's 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 a big iron company. These are the guys they produce, and 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 the sort of the focus of this is something called a WAF, a Web Application Firewall, which is used, you know, in in data centers and by companies, you know, larger companies that are able to afford a a very expensive multiple thousands of dollars, like $15,000 are what these things typically cost. Um, you know, so, so-called big iron machine. Um, the a blog posting from Michael Perrone, whose title is EVP and CMO. Well, now EVP's got to be executive vice president. What's a CMO? Uh, a, probably usually I'll, a chief marketing officer. Which always makes me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was hoping for something a little more technical than that. Chief marketing but... officer means the PR machine is in full force. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, what happened was, they uh, what was compromised was names and email addresses, much as was the case with, with uh, um, uh, the hack last Texas. week. Oh, last week. Yeah, that was E... Somebody, I've, I'm blanking uh, on the name. Uh, Epsilon. Epsilon, yes. Epsilon. Um, uh, he said, he, he wrote that their databases contained just one-way cryptographic hashes of salted passwords, which we'll be coming back to later in this podcast. All active passwords for applications remain secure. So he, And so quoting him, he said, so the bad news is that we made a mistake. The Barracuda web application firewall, I mean, and so... So what, what's a little bizarre is that the equipment they invented and produce and sell is supposed to stop what happened. This was an SQL injection. Ah. So the Barracuda web application well, this firewall... This is really embarrassing then. It is. In front of 
the Barracuda Network's website was unintentionally placed in <laughs> passive monitoring mode oh, and was trouble. off <laughs> and was offline through a maintenance window that started Friday night, April 2nd, 2011, after close of business Pacific time. Starting Saturday night at approximately 5 p.m. Pacific time, an automated script began crawling our website, searching for unvalidated parameters. Wow. That just shows after, you it doesn't take long. That's And this is what, what, what he, he, he has some nice conclusions here. After approximately two hours of nonstop attempts, the script crawling our site discovered an SQL injection vulnerability in a simple PHP script wow. that serves up customer reference case studies by vertical market. Wow. So this was an obscure little script somewhere that wasn't like mainstream. It wasn't the big deal. It was just off on the sidelines. But of course, that gave it a foothold. As with many ancillary scripts common to websites, this customer case study database shared the SQL database used for marketing programs. And there's the problem. Which contained names and email addresses of leads, channel partners, and some Barracuda Networks employees. The attack utilized one IP address initially to do reconnaissance and was joined by another IP address about three hours later. We have logs of all the attack activity and we believe we now fully understand the scope of the attack. This latest incident brings home some key reminders for us, including that, one, you can't leave a website exposed nowadays for even a day or less. Two, code vulnerabilities can happen in places far away from the data you're trying to protect. And three, you can't be complacent about coding practices, operations, or even the lack of private data on your site, even when you have web application firewall technology deployed. That's so, amazing. Yeah. That is really... Uh, but you know what? I think Barracuda uh, responded quite well, as, as they should. They're a security company. And they got kudos. Within the security community, yeah. your, your, your point is exactly right, Leo. They, they got some, some uh, analysis said, you know, congratulations on the way you came forward, as, a fo as opposed to, for example, RSA, who, you know, is, is also a high-profile security company, but they angered everyone right. for well, several they weeks. They obfuscated it. They, 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 yes. they, they kind of were so, they felt so bad that they didn't respond appropriately. Right. And, and this, right. You know, of course you feel bad. It's very embarrassing, but this also shows a couple of things that could good lessons. One is that uh, PHP scripts are all over the place, and if it gets run at any time, it's enough uh, leverage for a hacker to get in. And, uh, you know, I think to their credit, it sounds like they, they had multiple databases, and their most secure databases, were, you know, this was just the marketing database. But right. You want to separate databases, obviously. You know, not because not, once you get access to a database, a MySQL database, you got it. You yes, you're able there. to tell it to enumerate its own right. tables. Everything that's as, in as we as we talked about back yeah. in our SQL injection episode. Right. Um, the, in security news, I have great news. Oh, thank you. Um, Apple 
is adding the do not track browser header wow. to the to the OS. Yeah, I can't remember. Is it supposed to be? Am I supposed to say ten or X? It's ten. <laughs> ten to OS tens. Lion release. So that'll be. Uh, uh, for, oh, that's good. That's ten seven. Okay, good. Yes, good, it's good. in the next. It is. It's currently in the developer uh, release. Uh, the the pre-release betas. Uh, the do not do not track header option has been added. Is being added to Safari. So that means IE. Firefox 4, IE9, Firefox 4, and the next Safari will all have it. Well, pressure's on um, Chrome now, boy. It really is, and <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. Well, they'll because, do it. They'll do it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, and we've got to talk about France a little bit, Leo, because you and I did talk about this during yes. Sunday's yes. This, week in in this Week in Tech podcast that I joined you and John... Dvorak and Thank you for being on with Jerry and John. Jerry Pornell. Oh. It was our gray hair, our periodic gray hair episode. You can't be on it unless you have gray hair or no hair. Or aging gray matter. <laughs> or aging gray matter. And I, every time we do it, one or two people say, I don't want to hear old farts. But almost invariably, people are grateful because of the depth of knowledge, the context, the history that uh, everybody shares on that show. Oh, we were talking um, about ham radio and, yeah. I mean, you know, all kinds of wacky things. It's that, really you know, fun to do that. And we do it every few months. Uh, and, and thank you for being a part of it because it was, it was great. It was really great. I really loved it. So France has done something which I'm still holding, holding back judgment. Um, the, what they've said is that part of their data retention laws, which they're in the process of getting ready to, to start enacting and enforcing, uh, and we know the data retention is already controversial because it puts a probably an impossible burden on ISPs, the idea being that people who provide end-users connectivity to the Internet need to keep everything that their customers do. Well, it's, it's easy for some legislator to drop the gavel and say, yeah, it's a good idea. That sounds good. Let's do that. But, I mean, it, look, at the, look at the bandwidth we have now and the amount of data that would, be, would have to be aggregated across you know, at, at that bandwidth across some length of time. It's just, I mean, there, there's no technology for it today. I mean, I, you can imagine at some point in the future, if this happens, there will be da data aggregating service providers that will create, you know, big raid arrays that, that timestamp when things happen. I mean, you know, the problem ultimately could be solved, although at, at, at an expense that would never be low, um, I, I just, it just seems like a bad idea. You could step back from it and say, okay, let's just then record the IP addresses or the, you know, the email headers but not the content. Or, or you know, there, there are things you could do to back away from it that make it substantially more feasible to do this. But what France has said is they want the usernames and, and passwords and basically login information uh, to be made available by people who provide services like Google and eBay and so forth. And those companies are, are, are fighting back. And the issue that is interesting is that, as our listeners know, no responsible providers store passwords any longer. That's old school. 
If, so if you see something that says, oh, you, you know, your password is limited to 16 characters, as we've discussed, that's a warning flag that they've got a 16-character field in their SQL database, you know, and there's spiders trying to crawl around their site, trying to get into it right now. Um, you don't want your password saved. You want a you want a hash, and technically, yes, a salted hash of the password. That is to say, you want a one-way cryptographic function between what you enter and what gets stored permanently so that when you're asked to log in, you provide that again, and all, the, all your provider, your you know, Google or eBay or whomever, all they're doing is they're doing the same thing to the new password you put in that they did to the last password you put in, you know, the valid one, and seeing if the result of the hashes matches up. And if so, um, that's cryptographically sure that you entered the same thing. In fact, because a hash is a lossy operation, there are other things that technically could hash to the same thing, but the hash is so large, typically minimum of 128 bits and often now 256, that the chance of a collision is you know, is just vanishingly small. So, anyway, I'm hoping that the French legislation said usernames and passwords, and but just because that's the way they think of it from the user end, and once they get, the legislators get some additional education about what all this means, they'll go, oh, well, I guess what oh. we really just need <laughs> is... I mean, I'm not sure what it is they wanted. I mean, yeah. get, getting usernames and passwords potentially allows people with that information to log to to impersonate those users, uh, which is uh, nothing that you should allow data retention yeah. uh, laws to to facilitate. But that's what they wanted. Uh, that's it what sounds. remember. It's law enforcement that's asking for this. What would they like? Well, they'd like to be able to log in as Tony Soprano into his email and, system until he has yeah. the brains to change his password. Yeah, i.e., forever. That's, yeah. I think that's what they wanted. Mm. I wouldn't hold out hope for them to fix it. Because I'm not, my mind wasn't even believing that that's what they wanted. Of course that's want. what they wanted. They want as much as they can uh, get. Yeah. Because remember, uh, law enforcement is always thinking, well, it's bad guys we're going to do this to. But as, as civil libertarians, what we're thinking about is, well, who defines who the bad guys are? Right. And today it's crooks. Tomorrow it's uh, political dissidents. Yep. Yeah. Somebody yep. doesn't agree so, with the government. I have on my note here, or on my news, uh, the question of Dropbox authentication and whether it's insecure by design. There's a blog posting that was made by someone who was, who was just doing his own little forensic analysis of what kind of debris is left behind by the use of these kinds of remote storage systems. Um, I, I had it here. And I wanted to mention that I know about the blog post. I'm going to cover it in detail next week because it was one of the things that I was going to do uh, if I had time, and I just ran out of time. So I will cover this. I want to let it all everyone who's been sending me email and tweets about it that I do know about this posting, and I will uh, figure out what this guy did and what it means and tell all of our listeners next week. Thank you. Um, in my miscellaneous section, I wanted to note that Amazon has done something interesting. They've dropped the price of the Kindle to $114. If with ads, yes, exactly. Yes. But but you know, and and I I I I, I saw uh, TechCrunch mentioned it 
and then mentioned, well, that they didn't think that was cheap enough. And I sort of agree. If they it's could 25 get under, bucks. That's not a whole lot of savings. Right. If they could get down under 100 if they could get into the $99. Mm. $80. Or $80. You, yeah. you, see ads, you don't see ads in the books. You only see ads on the front page and when you're browsing. Well, I was just going to say that it's less intrusive than I thought. Yeah. So I, do, I wanted to say that, as I understand it, there's some sort of a screensaver. Their, their screensaver, I guess, is customizable. And only on the home page are there ads. But you're not being accosted by them like when you flip the pages of your book and suddenly there's an ad there. That would be more, not, that would be unacceptable. But yeah, that would be. This seems to me not so bad. I think it's not so bad. I yes, wish it were I, more than 25, but maybe that's because it's not so bad. They can't really expect to, to make more than 25 bucks per user. But isn't, after all, isn't the profit in the Kindle in the books, not in the Kindle itself? I really think so, Leo. Yeah. When I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that, wow, when I look at all the money that they've sucked out of me because I have Kindles, it's like, wow, I mean, they've, they're, they're making much more money on me selling me bits than they are, you know, right. pieces of plastic. Right. I, but just imagine if uh, they could manage to, I, I, don't, I don't mind these ads, if they could manage to subsidize it to the point where they give it away. For instance, uh -oh. there's a lot of people with an iPad or an iPhone who say, well, I, get, I can read my books on my iPad or an iPhone. But now they can get a Kindle, they can add that, because there's times you want a Kindle and bright light and so forth, and they're yeah. going to buy that many more books. I mean, I, I, I'm sure Amazon's doing these calculations. Yep. They know their business. Yep. So I just wanted to let our listeners know that for, with, with a little bit of... It's tempting. Of, <laughs> of, it, it is $114. Right, I'm going to order one. <laughs> I'll tell you how bad it is. <laughs> but the thing is, you got to think it's going to be $85 in about six months. Yeah. Also, um, I mentioned to you, I think probably offline, Leo, that there is a... a in, the, in the current build of the iPad... Oh, and by the way, there's just a new iOS... Uh, minutes ago uh, came out from Apple. 4.3.2 is now available for the phone, the pad, and the iPod Touch. Must be a bug uh, fix. No, yes, it just bugs in security. It uh, doesn't appear to have any new features. Um, you know what's interesting, they, Steve, though, is they're releasing these updates. This is the second update uh, in, a, in a couple of months. They're releasing these updates much more quickly than they used to. Clearly, these portable platforms are now in exactly the same position that the desktops have been for a long time, which they need to be updated frequently to prevent security flaws. Yep, I think that's very much the case. Um, I enabled something that I mentioned to you called, uh, uh, I, I, well, I wrote down developer gestures. Um, yes. I don't think that... Yeah, but I, but, uh, but, but I don't think that would be, I mean, it is at the moment for developers, right. but... What I wanted to mention was that I was experimenting with with cloning one iPad to another. That is, making a backup of, of my main iPad after I got all the apps organized and arranged and, and set up in, in subfolders. And then I didn't want to go through all that again because it's a pain in the butt to do that. So I, I erased uh, one iPad, or the second one, and then told it it was the first one and restored the first one's image essentially to the second one just to see that that all worked. And, right. and it, it does. So yeah. it's a very nice thing to do. You lose some passwords that like, like your, your Wi-Fi passwords and things you have yeah. to re-enter again. Yeah, that's appropriate. And you also Which lose some makes sense. I found the folders kind of disappear, so you have to kind of rearrange stuff. Oh, mine didn't. It didn't. I, I was oh, able you were to lucky. Okay. clone right. the entire folder oh, tree. Good. Um, which, which is what that was really my goal. Right. What I lost was temporarily. I got it back. 
those gestures. And oh. and so what what and so my point was that you know something is wonderful and like the right thing when after you lose it <laughs> you miss it <laughs> you can't live without it i'm it the the the, uh, the the gesture that i love most is just you you just put all your all your fingers on the pad and squeeze you sort of as if you're squeezing the current app and that's a replacement for the home button it's and, so sweet it's oh, so sweet yeah it is just it's the right thing and you know it's also nice you're able to put your fingers on and lift up in order to get in order to do the equivalent of double clicking the home button in order to get to the little strip of things you've used recently and also the brightness setting and so forth right but um i just i just wanted to mention the 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 presence of those gestures you 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 need to use the x code and when i talked to you about it before maybe it was during the podcast i don't remember it was, you i i bought it i bought x code 4. Point something or other and it just got updated yes. for $5 yes. but it turns out that the free x code 3 works too works oh. also oh that's good if you have so the you, sdk on it it, yes, so you have, you it, have the so iOS it, SDK, so it's not free because it's ninety nine bucks because you have to have iOS SDK. I think that's uh, the case. Okay, uh, what I what I did learn it was that Xcode version three, which you can apparently get for free, right? Connects.apple.com. You have to have a developer account, but I think you have to also have an iOS. Check me at chat room if I'm wrong on this. I thought you had to have an iOS developer's license, a $99 developer's license to get the SDK. Oh, no, it I does include have... the SDK. Never mind. Yeah. You're right. Sorry. Forget oh, okay. I said anything. Zipping it up. Yeah. The chat room confirms. So I don't have one, and it worked for me. And let me just awesome. say, oh, it is the best thing. When, once you start just squeezing the apps to make them go away, you know, when you want to do the equivalent of a home button, it, you can't live without it. So, so you have this on your, uh, if you have a Mac, you have Xcode 3 on your disk, on your install disk. Yes, it is. You're right. It's, it's an optional install when you install it, or you can add it later on. So, right, right. yes, yes, yes. I just wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. And while going through email today, I did this didn't quite rate a Q&A slot, Jared in Western Australia says he wondered about Leo and his iPad. Uh-oh. Now, I didn't know what the context of this was, but he says, you guys on MacBreak are nutters. Uh, did Leo actually take his iPad to everywhere, even to the bathroom on a cruise ship? I couldn't believe what I heard. Next thing would be Leo taking his iPad to bed with him. Sheesh. I do. Don't you I take it to my, bed with I, you? That's where mine, I've got, got, got one in bed. What are you talking about? Sure. Of course you take it to bed with you. Now, that's an Apple fanatic. Maybe you never heard of something. It's called privacy. It's like, okay, well, so I wanted to just acknowledge that I sleep with my iPad. and I, I got in bed last night after getting back from uh, Las Vegas. Jennifer was in bed, and I had to slide her iPad over to make room. <laughs> so even my wife goes to bed with her iPad. And this morning, before I got out of bed, I <laughs> yes, grabbed it and, yeah. oh, and, check, and re read some news for that's, a that's the whole point so. is you take it with you everywhere. In fact, Steve Jobs is very famous when he was first approached about making tablets. He says, I don't want to make a bathroom device. <laughs> but he did. Enough said. We won't belabor the and, point. Um, I had promised a review and I of iPad 2. And I will only say this. I agree with your appraisal, Leo, that anyone with an iPad 1 need not get an iPad 2. My, my takeaway is that the only thing they did, and it is brilliant, is they beveled 
the back side so that it comes to the flat front. And bizarre as that is, I mean, that's all they did. But when you hold it, you swear to God, I know. it is like it's a third of the thickness. And they're very tricky. Bizarre. Yeah. And I've like, I've, I've like, I've turned it over so that I'm holding it, looking at the back of it. And sure enough, you don't get that same feeling. Now yeah. it, it seems like it's the same thickness. Right. But when you hold it with that bevel, just yep. the way your fingers work on the edges, yep. it's fantastic. They did the same thing so, with their, uh, their laptops, the MacBook Air. To, to give it the same apparent thinness. It's very clever. They are smart, aren't they? Yeah. They know I, design. It, it was simple to do, and oh, what a difference in, yeah. in, in, in holding it. So, well, it's funny because yes, I, at, at, at NAB, I saw a number of iPad 1s, and uh -huh. they look so thick. <laughs> they look boxy. They do. They look boxy. Now, my conspiracy theory is, because Apple did this with the MacBook Air years ago, like two or three years ago, so they knew about it. They intentionally released the iPad uh -huh. 1 boxy, so that they'd have something to do with iPad 2. <laughs> I'm sure of it. They knew how to do this. They could have done this. Well, we had a listener, uh, Evan Drosky, who said, and this ties into backups, uh, Spinrite saves me from my backup wake-up call. Steve, I've been listening to security now for a few years and appreciate the job you and Leo are doing and can't wait for Wednesday afternoon, or in this case Thursday, to roll around for the next never too long episode. We may be testing that today. Uh, Steve, <laughs> I, <laughs> he says, okay, truth time. I haven't been backing up my system. I usually transfer my stuff from one drive to a larger one every so often as I need space and keep one step ahead of the inevitable disaster. I'm sure you know where this is going. This time, I waited too long. Oh, boy. It started when I was ripping an unprotected DVD I have and was shocked to see that Windows Media Player was having problems playing back the file I had just created. Luckily, I already had Spinrite, so I rebooted into Spinrite, ran it at level 2. It found a few bad sectors right away and fixed them. No other problems were detected with the rest of the drive. I re rebooted into Windows and check disk came up to fix the file system. Okay, fine. Everything looked okay, and I went about my normal computing again. A few days later, I rebooted my system and check disk came up again for the drive and Bad fixed sign. some problems again. Bad sign. Uh-huh. And he says, hmm, not good. Mm. I rebooted into Spinrite the next morning, set level 2 on its way, and left for work. When I came home, I was shocked at what I saw. This time, the first two lines of Spinrite's graphical status screen were completely filled with red U's. This was bad. The detailed log told me that every 50 to 100,000 sectors or so, there was a bad one that was only partially recovered. Four days later, and my 250 gig drive was finished. Looking at the results everywhere, there was data on, uh, looking at the results, everywhere there was data on the drive, there were bad sectors only partially recovered. It looks like every file on there could have been affected. I restarted into Windows and started copying my recovered data onto a newly purchased one terabyte drive. Post more, post more 
use of Spinrite, there was only one file that Windows could not copy. I, oh, I see. So he kept using Spinrite and working on getting his data back and using sort of like oh, bouncing back and forth between Windows and Spinrite. He says, and I can easily recreate that one ISO file myself. A preliminary look at my data shows that Spinrite has recovered everything off that old drive that was trying everything it could not to give up my stuff. I want to thank you for such a well-written and tenacious program. It's well worth the price to me for recovering 10 plus years worth of my digital life. My next project will be to build myself a file server, RAID and all, for image-based system backups, one step closer to the 321 process that Leo endorses. I can now say I'm a backup convert. Thank you again. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and not a moment too soon. No kidding. Either. He was he lucky. He was wow. very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just I did want to make a comment that you know hard drives should never show any bad sectors. So he should have taken more warning when he ran Spinrite yes. that first time yes. and saw some red U's. That's that says the drive is is in trouble. You know, he got four more days of apparent, you know, bonus life out of it before it really began right. collapsing on him. And then, you know, it's it's a good thing that he was able to get everything he could off. But I would consider that really pushing one's luck. So if you do see the red, you know, unrecoverable sectors, Spinrite is, is telling you, well, you know, you I've done what you told me to, but... Do you know, don't count on this drive for much longer. So unrecoverable means I can't read it, and I'm I'm I can't save it. I can't yes. save that sector. And spin well exactly. And Spinrite doesn't doesn't it doesn't make any conclusions. It doesn't rewrite it. Right. It leaves it alone because there's and this is a good thing because clearly you know think and there there are tricks like you know get, getting the drive cooler, sticking it in your refrigerator for a while, and and then trying it that that do often surprisingly. Uh, allowed data to get recovered that couldn't be otherwise, um, but, but uh, you do but that. You do that once, a, and then you get it, and you, you get a new drive. Yeah, you know? it's a lot of work. Yeah, and it's not going to work twice. You can right. get the data and get out. Exactly. Thank, thank your lucky stars if you do get it. Steve, we're going to take a break. We've got ten questions from ten listeners, good and true, and you will answer them. I know with great answers in just a second. Before we do that, though, I would like to tell everybody about a better way to create a website. Squarespace. Dot com. This has nothing to do, nothing to do with the security breach at WordPress.com. Nothing to do with that. Uh, WordPress.com is a great place. It's free. Uh, let me tell you, the best content management software out there, the best web hosting out there, the most secure system out there is Squarespace.com slash security. Now, it's a secret behind exceptional websites. For one thing, it doesn't use MySQL. For, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with MySQL, and my site uses it. But, but uh, they're using a very sophisticated Java-based virtual server technology that is second to none for performance, reliability, robustness, and security. You don't use Java when you're using Squarespace. I'm not talking about that. This is on their, their end. Squarespace content management system is spectacular. It sits on top of their amazing hosting. And you get so many great features, including statistics, photo galleries, templates that don't look like templates, so every site is unique. You can import and export your data to all the standard uh, blog APIs, including movable type WordPress, yes, TypePad, 
blogger. And here's the beauty of this. You could try before you buy absolutely free, full benefits of this, and you don't give them any personal information. No credit card required. Just click the green button at squarespace.com slash security now and set up a site, import your data. You'll give them a name, a password, the email address, which is only used if you forget your password. And to let you know that you're, if once your thing is expiring, that it's expiring. It is not used in any other way. And a capture to make sure you're not robots, because, of course, there's a lot of spammers that would love to set up Squarespace sites. They don't, and they can't. It's just for you. Squarespace.com slash security. Now, for two weeks, you're going to get the full Squarespace, no charge, no credit card needed. Set it up. Try it. Import your data. Play with this, the incredible templates. Use those social widgets like Twitter and Flickr and and Facebook and everything to add add content to your site automatically. There's even an RSS. I love this plugin. And here's the beauty of this: with these sliders and everything, you don't. It's so simple to set it up. But if you are a CSS or JavaScript wizard, you can also do that. So you really the sky's the limit on this. You'll get a great site without knowing any web technologies at all. But if you do know them, you can do even more. Squarespace.com/security now. The best hosting. The best software and a great price. $12 a month to start and less the more you buy. Squarespace.com slash security now. Try it free right now for 14 days. You get started in 30 seconds. No credit card, no commitment. Just the best. Squarespace.com slash security now. Please do use security now so that Steve gets credit for all the people who heard this ad on his fine show. Every, you know, the reason I mention that is uh, it's a lot shorter to type twit. And so people, I think people generally will do that. They will say, oh, yeah, I'll just, I don't uh, remember what it was exactly. And they'll type twit, which is nice, but that way twit gets all the credit. And I really want our, all of our shows to get the credit they deserve. So do me a favor, do our hosts a favor. If you hear an ad and, and it, it calls you to action on that show, that's your way. In a way, people always say, can I do donate to an individual show? That's how you do it. Use that individual show's offer code. They don't get more money out of that. It's only used for tracking because we don't pay per uh, per new. But it user. does. It, it provides you valuable feedback to know and you know who what 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 audience right. of what podcast is responding right. to the to your um to your promotion. Not, not just us, but the advertisers. They really want to know that, and and yeah. I want I want to make sure that Steve's always got ads because <laughs> he's such it's such a good show, uh, and we'd do it even if we didn't. But uh, but it's nice to know that people uh, people like it. Squarespace.com/slash/security now all one word all right are you ready steve you betcha q a time uh, of course i did i close the uh, the <laughs> close the questions <laughs> i probably did you know what i do as i'm as as we're doing this show i immediately get them into the wiki because i want to make sure people can read the show notes and even read the questions as we go um hmm. in fact i i don't know if i mentioned this enough but we have a really great wiki wiki.twit.tv uh we use it because it's a wiki we uh we, we use our community to keep it up to date and people are always putting information in there many of the shows have their own kind of people doing the show notes for them but since you send me you're the only host that does this steve complete show notes with all the detail and links i just uh, you know because i have them i uh, i do a little grep on it to clean it up and, and wikify it and then i uh I put it into, let me turn this on. I put it into the um, uh, uh, wiki, wiki.twit.tv slash, uh, well, it's a long, a long URL. If you just go to <laughs> wiki.twit.tv, click the security now link, you'll see all the notes are in there uh, as we go. So question number one, right from the wiki. It's Bo via Twitter. So it's a short question. Steve, mm -hmm. is there a do not track option 
in Chrome? There is not at the moment. And uh, we mentioned this earlier in the show um, that the good news is the notion of, okay, uh, he says do not track option. And what we're talking about is a do not track header where Chrome, right Chrome now. Has, Chrome has an extension to do this. Well, it has, uh, and, and that's what I'll From address Google. in a second. Yeah. Yeah, but it's different. Um, so what Firefox does is with version 4 or if you're using 3 as I still am, waiting for 4 to kind of settle down a little bit, uh, we're using NoScript. NoScript has converted its, its uh, do not track header over to the, what has now become the standard, which is just DNT colon space 1, which is not the default in any of the browsers, but in, um, in IE9, and in Firefox 4 or 3, if you use NoScript, um, and we believe now in the next release of Safari, the Safari that will be part of the um, OS 10 Lion release, that, that will be available. Um, that adds this header, which requests not to be tracked, which is different from other technology, which is available, for example, turning off third-party cookies, blocking... Um, uh, persistent objects, uh, using uh, IE's tracking protection uh, lists. There are uh, other technologies. What Chrome has is an add-on which saves your preferences. So the idea is you're, you opt out on a advertiser-by-advertiser advertiser basis saying... Or, or, or there are sites that we've talked about where you're, they'll, they'll use scripting in order to visit all the sites and set the opt-out cookies for you. Then what Chrome allow, what this Chrome add-on allows you to do is to freeze those, essentially to not worry about those, those requests, those individual requests not to be tracked. You don't have to worry about them being lost somehow or, or reset. Um, so I'm... I'm not nearly as excited about that as I am about just having our browsers say, do not track. And everyone comes back, well, not everyone, but they say, wait a minute, um, that's optional. I mean, people have to agree to abide by it. And it's like, well, today it is. Um, the, um, the direct advertising uh, groups, the, the societies are, are trying to decide whether, you know, how they feel about this, whether they're going to adopt it or not, they haven't said yet one way or another, but um, there's a sense that if they don't go, uh, go along with this um, voluntarily, that it'll be, posed, it'll be imposed on them legislatively. So um, I, I just think given that the major browsers are supporting it, we now have a standard, thankfully. There's, it'd be crazy for Chrome not to add this. So I, the, it doesn't do it yet but in the same way that the other ones do, but I think we'll have it before long. Yeah, and uh, just by virtue of the fact that everybody but Chrome is doing it in the browser, it's just going to not only have it right. happen, but it'll also mean that the federal government can then pass a law if they need to. I mean, there'll, there'll be a lot more support for the notion of yes. a track exactly. system working. So it's just a matter. I mean, I'm surprised. You know, it's Google did introduce, it may have been the first to introduce this plug-in and this concept. It was either Google or Firefox. Google followed very quickly on. Um, but it's a plug-in. It's not in the browser. So, right. Bruce Powers in New Jersey wonders about CAs, certificate authorities. I see that Komodo has another bad CA event. Do you remove authorities from your browser, Steve? What disadvantage is there from removing one I don't know or use? 
Um, actually, the, the Komodo did have two other problems, which they, dis they disclosed at around the same time as the, the bad one that we discussed before. Um, although those were breaches of additional, uh, of two additional subsidiaries of theirs, but uh, the, the breach occurred, but certificates were not issued. So it didn't create as big an issue. So I just did want, I wanted to cover that. Um, I don't remove circ uh, CA certificates, certificate authority root certificates from my browser, but I kind of think that I should. Um, I mean, I, I think it's worth doing depending upon who you are. I would like to see better technology for managing our SSL connections. And we've discussed this um, from time to time. For example, it would be nice if our browsers cached the SSL connection details that we make, for example, when we're really connected to Google or to Microsoft or wherever. That is to say, you know, we talked about how there, there's actually a certificate chain that, that and, and every certificate has a unique serial number. So, e, so even fraudulently obtained certificates will have a different serial number. The, the only way to spoof a serial number would be to get access to the root um, to, to, to the root CA's private key and so far that hasn't happened in the case of certificate authorities we know that it happened for example um, it's one of the things that Stuxnet did in order to spoof its um, its driver certificates uh, it did they did get the private keys of two companies that were hardware manufacturers and use, that was being used to sign their drivers. So it's not impossible for private keys to get loose. It hasn't happened yet in the case of, of an SSL provider. But the idea is that, that a fraudulent certificate could be used to impersonate a website. For example, you know, Yahoo was one that was targeted immediately by the, the whoever it was uh, believed to be in Iran who used the um, the compromised third party uh, to issue themselves certificates for these these high profile websites but if your if your browser remembered the certificate path with serial numbers that it normally uses to go to Yahoo a change in that would rep, would really be a red flag. It's not necessarily the case that 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 represents a problem because, for example, when I renew my certificate, when GRC's certificate expires, as it does every two or three years, I'm forced to get a, a new certificate, which I install on my server before, hopefully before, the expiration of the prior one. Well, that will have a different serial number. So... So that would raise a red flag if such a system as I'm describing existed, but people could then check to see, you know, like, does this look like it's still, you know, grc.com? Um, uh, uh, what IP am I connected to? Is there any, or look at the certificate chain carefully. Are there any unknown 
intermediate certificate authorities in there. I mean, like, you know, essentially do a sanity check to see whether something has changed because change would be an indication of there being a problem and it's not something that is spoofable. Um, alternatively, you remove certificate authorities that you just don't trust, like, you know, the uh, unfortunately often maligned and unfairly maligned, I should say, Hong Kong Post Office. I hope that uh, it's unfair. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Um, <laughs> we bring you know, it up a lot. <laughs> We do. They're, they're my favorite whipping boy. Um, so, so have I ever visited a website that was over SSL using a certificate signed by the Hong Kong Post Office? I don't think I probably ever have in my life. I mean, I don't speak uh, Chinese. Um, I'm, if I go to a Chinese site, I can't read the page that comes up. So, and the... The flip side of being spoofed by a certificate of an English language site signed by the China, by the Hong Kong Post Office seems, you know, higher than what I would lose if I didn't have that certificate. So I could see some advantage to removing certificates that just really seem like uh, they have they're not bringing me more value then they are bringing me the possibility of, of them being used to exploit the trust that they, that they imply. I so, guess the problem is you don't know, you, you know, removing a root certificate doesn't just remove the Hong Kong Post Office, it removes everything that uses that root CA to certify itself. Precisely. So you do, and you can't really, I don't, is there a way you could tell where the, no, because it just is a, as it comes in. Exactly. So there's, yeah, there isn't any way. Now, I so need if, to take for a instance, look. Google used the Hong Kong Post Office as its certificate, what the only thing you would get is this, cert this certificate isn't legit, right? Right, right. You would get the notice saying that, that this certificate is signed by a, by a party whom you do not trust. That is, you haven't said you trust it because that, that chain is not anchored by a certificate that you've Im you've implicitly trusted because you haven't explicitly deleted it, so so you get that notice and then um, the behavior from that point varies and it's been it's been getting tighter. I've noticed it used to be that you could click through those warnings and say yes, okay, fine, I I trust them anyway. Um, that's one thing that's probably a good change we're seeing is browsers are really beginning to fight back more. And saying, ah, you, we're not going to let you go there at all if you don't trust oh, these so people. Oh, so that's interesting. So yeah, you, you, you might not be able to get to a site, but at least you'd know, you'd probably have some idea why. Oh, yeah. I, you, you could definitely look at this certificate and see that it was signed by the Hong Kong Post Office and go, oh, that's right, I, I deleted that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I go ahead. I mean, yeah, that's what I think, too. I think we could use some nice certificate authority management tools that the, the tool that I mentioned, the EFF runs this thing, the EFF observatory. I've got it on my notes to, to spend some time and look into that, probably do a podcast on it. Cause the sense I get is that they may have an answer to that question, Leo, who's, who's signed by the Hong Kong post office, which, which they would have obtained by watching internet traffic over a long period of time. And I think what they're doing is building a record of certificate chains in use on the internet. Yeah, that's what it looks like, doesn't it? That's great. 
One more reason to love the EFF. Yeah, they're and, they're doing uh, a great job. If you if you use this, donate to them. We do, I donate. Uh, we make a regular uh, monthly donation. And they take Bitcoin. Members. They take Bitcoin. They Leo. take Bitcoin, but I send them I, American greenbacks. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll send them Bitcoin, too. My machine just generates Bitcoin for me, so <laughs> yeah, I we send it off. A lot of it, apparently. You have friends at Bitcoin. No, no, just teasing. There are no friends. There are no friends because there, no, there is no buddy home. No one to love there. Nope. No one to love. Uh, moving along, question number three, I think. Let me just make sure. Yes. Lisa Matthias in uh, San Mateo says, Why do you like Java on Android? I heard you and uh, Steve and Leo speaking favorably of Android, the uh, the, op the Google operating system for handsets and its openness. But it seems to me as a third-party developer, Android OS is the most closed system since it restricts me to only developed glorified web apps, Java, JavaScript, Flash apps. That Well, I'll, I'll speak to that in a second. It also seems strange that whenever Google needs a new type of processor-intensive app, as the Android Guardians, they create extensions to their Java VM to support it. This is not an option that third-party developers have. Android apps are restricted to the virtual machine. In contrast, only iOS allows me to create native binary apps using the same API libraries and SDK that Apple uses for their own native apps that come bundled with it. Apple apps are not restricted to any VM space since they run natively, but are restricted in the App Store. Note that, like Android, you can still develop and install your glorified web apps. They're not. I'm sorry, I can't let her say that twice. <laughs> a web app is JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. Java, I think people often confuse Java with JavaScript, is a full-blown programming language. You have full beautiful access. Language. It's a beautiful yes. language. It is not a glorified web app by any means. It's running native code. Not native, but it's code running on your phone, just like a regular program, just like all of the other Google programs. Steve could easily write his own iOS apps in Assembler, and that's which is true, and publish them in the. I don't. I guess it's true. I don't, you could certainly write Assembler code in Xcode for a desktop. I don't know if they have an Assembler for the ARM A5. I, I bet doubt not. That I, I doubt that I would pass their um, their API tester, which is you know right. only allows you to use uh, you know special things. Yeah, I. I do not think that you can, in fact, write A5 or A4 assembler. In right. I, uh, for, so, anyway. Uh, Steve could easily write his own iOS apps in assembler and publish them in the iTunes App Store, an option Steve does not have with Android. So could you guys please explain why you like Android OS when it seems to be nothing more than a glorified web browser like Google's other Chrome OS? Sincerely, Lisa. Steve? Okay. So, do you want me okay, to yell? So or, this, you're not going to yell. You're going to be very nice. It, well, it sounds a little... I think she doesn't the, understand stuff. Well, and maybe a little evangelical. I mean, she seems to be very pro-iOS and very anti-Android. And so I, I was thinking back, well, okay, I mean, I really don't have an opinion one way or the other that she sort of think, seems to think I have. I mean, I'm, I'm really sort of an iOS fanboy. She's if anything, referring to I mean, me but, really more than you. Well, and what I think it is, I think she got a little confused because what I was excited about was just the concept of Amazon's Android VM that allows you to test Android apps in the web browser. Right. And that is something that we talked about in the last week or two, which I think was very cool. The idea that you could, you know, do a 30-minute test drive of an app 
play with it, see how you like it. I mean, it's one of the things that really annoys me about iOS is there's no way to try out an app. You, you, you know, they're not very expensive, but, you know, I've got a lot of them that I wish I hadn't bought. But I don't know that until I buy it. Right. Um, so and, let me just yes. address the technical issues, which is that yes. Java, uh, uh, the way Java works, and it's a very respected language, works very well, is it does, it's right once run uh, many because every platform that you run a Java program on does in fact have a virtual machine. So uh, Google... So yes, J Java compiles down to an intermediate language, right. which, you, which you, then, you then have an interpreter essentially to, inter to interpret Java bytecode right. into the native platform, which gives you this tremendous portability. Right. Um, and that's many phone systems. BlackBerry uses this as well. Many phone systems use a Java virtual machine in Java for several reasons. There's a security uh, value to it because right. all, all the apps are running within the virtual machine and they're protected from the uh, hardware. It's the same reason Apple, I guarantee you, does not like let you run assembly language code on the iPhone. Uh, you're always running, you know, in a sense, you're always running uh, within an environment uh to containment. protect containment to protect you on the iPhone or on the uh, on the Android phone. So that is not the when people say Android's not open, that is not where the, where the discussion lies. These are not web apps; they're genuine first-class apps. You have access to the same tools that Google has and uses, and many developers do, in fact, like writing Java code uh, for platforms. So I don't think that is an issue. Yeah, uh, and when Java, we were, where I think, you, I guess it was on Sunday, we were talking about Gosling. Um, He's now working and, for Google, the guy who wrote Java. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a state-of-the-art, very modern, you know, tremendous little language. And if you feel like it, you can write Android code in other languages, including Python, C, or C++. Uh, they just have little plugs, you know, little bridges that, that make it run. Um, still within the VM. Quit, uh, which is the tool that... Uh, uh, Google promotes is an amazing uh, a tool that does allow you to write in other languages and so forth. So I, I think that any complaint that it is a web app is not accurate. Yeah. Uh, and nor does Apple have some sort of advantage by not using a Java VM. I don't think so. Um, well, and, you know, market forces and popularity is showing us that Android OS is doing just fine on yeah. on similar platforms with similar processor power and similar battery life. Yeah. Now, she says access to libraries. I don't know if Google writes libraries uh, that they don't release. I don't believe that's the case either. Um, Android is, is, is not fully Google's. It is the open handset alliances. Uh, Google does write code that they then later release into the uh, open source. But you can go to GitHub right now and get the full source code for the current version of Android, which is gingerbread. Full source code, and I presume full libraries, or it wouldn't run. So yeah. I, I don't think there's secret libraries. <laughs> Can I tell you something? Guarantee you Apple has secret libraries. There's no doubt. Because Apple can do things on the iPhone that no one no one else can. Oh, okay. well, yeah. It's a completely locked down, you right. know, DRM'd platform. Yeah. Now, Crucial Wax asked an important question. Is is performance uh, in a, in a, in a, on Java on, the, uh, on Android comparable to native performance? Yes. Because it's hardware uh, optimized for it. So I don't think that you're seeing a performance hit at all. Um, now, Lou, who works for Microsoft, says Android does have operating system APIs they don't publish, which is why some applications require root. 
But see, then I wouldn't. I don't think so, Lou, because then you would be able to download Gingerbread. Well, maybe there are some. Maybe Gmail and some of the proprietary apps have access to. No, because you have the source code. I don't. They'd be open. Yeah, there, there's no you way have to hide the code. that. There's no way to hide that. There's no way to hide that. Apple absolutely hides that. They have many undocumented uh, libraries. So, sorry, Lisa. Nice try. Question four, Dan. We can keep this conversation going. It's so funny because I, you know, here's the big, here's the bottom line. Why be religious about operating systems? Right. Makes no sense. They're pros and cons to everything. They're just computer operating systems. You may like or not like a company, but the company couldn't care less about you. <laughs> you can love the iPhone. It doesn't love you back. So why be uh, dogmatic about it? Everything has its advantages or disadvantages. I'm pretty sure my iPad loves me, Leo. <laughs> See? See? Steve's smart. It's that thin little beveled edge. Dan Humman, or Human, in Pennsylvania on Question 4 offers a minor nitpick about our password discussion in 294. Steve, I just wanted to drop a quick note about how passwords are stored in databases. I totally agree with hashing and salting passwords. We just talked about that. But I think you left out an important final step. When choosing a hash algorithm, make sure it's one that has some significant computational load associated with it. Now, this is an interesting point. The one I use personally is bcrypt. If there's a small but real computational cost to hashing one password, then if the database is compromised, brute force attacks against the entire stored database hashes are much more difficult to accomplish. I only mention this because I know many up-and-coming web programmers are listening, and I want them to have the best possible tools available to them. And he points us to a website, codeahale, C-O-D-A-H-A-L-E.com, and a page there, a codehale uh Coda uh, Hale is, I guess, a, a programmer, and um, his website has a page called How to Safely Store a Password. Yeah, you wouldn't use ROT13. Well, uh, it's more than that, and this is something I've been looking at uh, sort of myself for, for different reasons. The idea is that the hash algorithms that we commonly use, you know, MD5, SHA1, and so forth... Uh, even the, the the more recent stronger ones, SHA two fifty six, for example, one of their benefits, one of the things, the one of the reasons we chose them is that they're fast. Was that it is, was don't, SHA compromised? Well, there uh, both MD five and uh, SHA one have had some some sort of semi compromises, meaning that. That, that as cryptanalysis has gone further with them, it's been possible to play some games with them, which is, you know, for example, you wouldn't use you wouldn't use SHA one today in a state of the art product. You would absolutely use SHA two fifty six. Um, but they were one, one, one of the original design criteria was that they're fast. That is, that it's very quick to hash something because you might be hashing and typically are, you know, large blobs. So the algorithm itself needs to run very quickly. Hashes are not, except for the purpose of obscuring a password, hashes are not used on something smaller than the hash itself. Remember, the hash produces 256 bits. You might be putting in a password actually smaller than that, and it expands it to 256 bits because anything that comes out of the hash is always the same size. So typically, hashes were designed and chosen for speed. But what that means is 
The flip side is, from a brute forcing standpoint, it is much easier to brute force a hashed password, which is based on a fast hash, because you can do many more of those brute force tests per second when the hash, even though even though it's a cryptographic function, it just inst it very quickly produces a result. So you can try another one and try another one, try another one and try another one. So what Dan is saying is, and he's exa exactly right, state-of-the-art protection deliberately slows this down. Bcrypt is a, is a solution which uses, I believe it's Blowfish. It uses the Blowfish key schedule, which is a time-consuming thing to set up. It uses that in order to produce a, a deliberately computationally intensive process of going from password to hash. So it's, it's on purpose, it's slow. And, and actually, what's cool about Bcrypt is it's scalable. As processors get faster, you can, you can turn the workload up to slow it down so that there's a relatively fixed amount of, That's funny. of, of cost, <laughs> yes, that, 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 that um, you know, deals with um, the, the increase in speed of processors over time. Now, I'll take this one step further because I have been reading a lot about hashing lately or, or passcode or password, passcode protection. The problem you still get then is with FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays, basically hardware. The idea being that, you know, GPUs, graphics processing units in PCs are amazingly powerful, but people who are serious about cracking passwords had field programmable gate arrays, literally turning that process into hardware so that it is very fast. And interestingly, the way people, the people on the, on the leading edge of this have dealt with that problem is something called memory hard problems. One thing that field programmable gate arrays don't have is vast amounts of memory. And so, what Dan was talking about is doing an algorithm which is computationally intensive, but imagine an algorithm which is memory intensive. That is, where in order for it to function, and there's just, there is no way around this, you, it has to be given a big, like a gig of memory, wow. a big block of memory, and it has to have it all to itself for some length of time in order to do its job. And there's, there just isn't, you know, you can demonstrate cryptographically there is no way to do this without it having all access to all of that memory. And those are called memory hard problems. And so the state of the art in protecting passwords involves not just something that is computationally intensive, but is deliberately memory intensive. And what that prevents is from, it prevents people like the NSA from just doing this in hardware. You just, you'd have to have vastly more memory than is practical currently, yeah. which I think is, you know, very cool insight. That's a great, a great, uh, great idea. Coda, C-O-D-A, Hale, H-A-L-E, uh, dot com to read about, uh, read about using Bcrypt to, uh, to hash your passwords. Yep.
Yeah, that's that's kind of clever. I like that. Uh, let me see here. Did I close your window again? <laughs> I keep uh, as I surf around. I keep uh, keep yeah. closing your window so I can't. Uh, let's see. There it is. Twit Wiki. I'm reading it out of the show notes these days. Ah. Dalvik, by the way, we were we were talking about the uh, the Java virtual machine on um, Android phones. It's called Dalvik, which is a well, I think a Finnish fishing village, and um, it's open source as well. The virtual machine itself is open source. Um, so I find that kind of intriguing. That's Let's, really neat. Yeah. yeah. Russ, oh, and Lou M.M., who works for Microsoft, says that there are secret, uh, or uh, let's not say secret, there are closed libraries used by some of Google's own uh, closed apps on the Android phone that are uh, lo dynamically loaded. They're downloaded, uh, which is why they're not in the open source. But, of course, uh, you, would, you could only do the closed source apps would be the only apps, I think, that could use those closed libraries. So, yes, the, I guess to, uh, to defend Lisa a little bit, it is true, it is the fact that Google, or it could be the fact that Google has proprietary libraries they don't disclose, but I don't think that gives them magical powers over the Android operating system. Glenn not, when it's on, not, not when they're running on top of an open source OS. Right. right. Uh, Glenn Edward in Nottingham, Maryland. Nope, sorry. Uh, we'll go to question five. Russ in Austin, Texas. He's next takes issue with your comments about Microsoft Windows being a toy operating system. Boy, that really did generate some oh, fur. I bet you got some, some but you knew it would. Oh, you yeah. It would. It's, those, them's fighting words. <laughs> I think it's unfair to criticize Windows for having hundreds of files and modules, as well as distributed development teams. Are you saying every other, quote, real OS, such as Linux, BSD, and others, are made by a single team of programmers that handle all aspects of the OS? I know this is not true, and I know there are tons of files as part of the distributions. I also think it's fair to differentiate a consumer OS, such as Windows, unfair, or fair, he says fair, to differentiate a consumer OS, such as Windows 7 and Windows 2008, in their roles. Oh, yeah, to be fair, these are consumer OSs, of course. Lack of proper configuration and maintenance of an OS will leave everyone vulnerable. IT professionals working at companies need to be responsible for their configuration, regardless of OS. It's unfair to imply that BSD, Linux, or others would be secure with no additional configuration or maintenance out of the box. So all of the people who took issue with my use of the word toy, uh, you know, brought me to some pause. It's like, okay, well, what did I mean by that? What, you know, when I made the comment, it was the idea that RSA, their most secret crown jewels could be exposed by somebody opening a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet that had an embedded flash movie in it and that that let the person get into their network um, so so my frustration is that and one can imagine this is no longer true at RSA but it was true once it was true the first time um, so my my annoyance is that 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 RSA's original network architecture was such that there was no division. I mean, no absolute, unequivocal division that prevented someone pulling 
a rogue piece of email out of their trash and opening it and allowing a bad guy to get in. Um, and and I do, I, I'll defend my lack of respect for today's operating systems. These are consumer toys. The, I mean, it is possible. Computers obey strict rules. It is possible to have an absolutely bug-free, bulletproof system. It's very expensive, and we don't have any. And 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 I didn't mean to imply that BSD and Linux were necessarily different. We're surrounded by toy operating systems. Unfortunately, that's all there is for us to use because <laughs> it, it's just too expensive. But I mean, you know, every I, people say, "Oh, all software has bugs." I cringe when I hear that. It's, yes, it's true and absolutely unnecessary. Yet it's true, right? Because it's too expensive to do a perfect job. There just there's, there's no money in be in doing a perfect job. Do you think it's even possible? Um, yes, Leo. I mean, come on, it's math. It's processors. Right. These right. things obey rules. There's absolute. I mean, I guess I'm. I feel so passionate about it because I live down in assembly language where nothing is hidden. Right. I've been pulling my hair out. For the last couple of weeks in JavaScript land, I will soon have oh. a JavaScript machine to show everyone, all of our listeners. But, oh, my God, what a catastrophe JavaScript uh, and it, the environment yeah. is. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, everything I do, I have to fight and struggle, and it's not compatible, and it runs over here, but not over there. I even ran across a, my, where my own development environment was, something was not working there, but it does when I'm not in the development environment. It's like, oh, my God. And nothing is the same between browsers. There was one place where every, every browser I used, I tried interpreted something slightly differently. Right. So, oh goodness, it's just a, and I'm I'm so unused to that because I'm right. down in assembler. And one thing that Intel has been good at, not perfect, but good at, is their you know the Intel machine language is uniform across their chipset. So, so of course, I mean it's 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 by definition it's possible for us to have an absolutely bug-free environment and not a bug in any apps it'll never happen but it's <laughs> absolutely possible i mean uh, and, and, and it bugs me it annoys me that i'm that we're sitting here you know some guy turns his web firewall off and a, and a spider marches into his website and crawls around it for a few hours and finds an sq an unchecked sql phrase and leverages it i mean right. this sounds like science fiction it's not science fiction. It's it's true. It's happening all the time. And does it seem it's happening more often, Leo? Oh yeah, you now have a section. Yeah, called breaches and vulnerabilities. <laughs> <laughs> We're making a special feature on the podcast just for that. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean PHP is pretty notoriously bad for this, and so much of the web is written in PHP. Um, but it's programmer well, education. It's things like validating your uh, your SQL query. True, a huge. Know. I mean. Again, I, as I let when I let Dovi off the hook, it's because I recognize that all of that code in Flash right. was written with no concern for security. Yeah. I mean, just like Windows was originally written with no concern for security. That doesn't mean that lots of bad decisions or ex, um, decisions made for expediency's sake haven't been, you know, ha haven't occurred since. They certainly have, but but still. 
You know, it, it, it is, we, we are dealing with a huge legacy that only very slowly gets moved forward. Sanitize your inputs, folks. Uh, silver lining from Glenn Edward in Nottingham, Maryland. Uh, an observation about this recent April 2011 Windows Patch Tuesday. The one we just talked about with 64 fixes. One thing you can say about this month's Patch Tuesday is the majority of the vulnerabilities that are being patched exist in Windows 7. <laughs> okay, that's... Uh, I, wait a minute, I'm trying to figure out the logic here. That means either one, no more faults exist in Windows XP. <laughs> or two, Microsoft isn't bothering to fix Windows XP faults now. Or three, hackers are abandoning XP for the more exploitable playground of Windows 7 and Vista. A silver lining for those of us still using Windows XP, like you, Steve, is, of course, we may finally be slipping off the radar hacker attack-wise. Uh, even if it's not true, it feels kind of nice to believe it. Almost like running Linux and knowing no one's after, actively after your system. What do you say to that? I think there's something to it. Really? I mean, I've... Oh yeah, I've talked before about how I've got some friends who are on are, are on Windows 98 because it does what they need, which is minimal email and web surfing, and um, and you know there's no no one is attacking Windows 98 anymore, and it is the case that the the target is is a is a moving target upstream. And that we also know that new code is inherently more vulnerable than old code, and I think it's it's no coincidence that we're that we will be and are are beginning to clearly see a differentiation between attacks against XP and Windows 7 and Vista. It's it's the newer stuff, the newer browsers. IE9, for example, no, it can't have any IE9 problems in XP because IE9 won't run on XP. Well, that's true. So. So, you know, so as we move forward, we, we really do, it's not that we're leaving behind perfect code, we're leaving behind much more well-tested code, and no one is messing with it any longer. Well. It, it has a chance to just sit there and, you know, and not be changed all the time, because change is the enemy of security. I would just like to point out that Microsoft's <laughs> end-of-life date for Windows XP was 2009. You can get extended support, but you have to be a business. The reason they're not pushing fixes is because they end of life to that operating system. There's no way in the world that it is secure that they got all this stuff fixed. And uh, they're not pushing fixes because they said, we're not going to push fixes anymore. That's yep. why. Yep. I wonder, though, I mean, I have to say, if I were a hacker, I would look at what is the percentage distribution of the various versions of Windows. You certainly do go after the one that's in the majority. But they're still fixing SP3. XP Service Pack 3 is still being fixed. You do have to have Service Pack 3. But I just think there, I think there are a ton of unpatched XPs running closets and corporations all over the world. Oh, God. You take an original XP? <laughs> no one, and no one's paying attention to those. So you hack them and it's yours forever. True. I think if I'm a hacker, I go after no. XP. But you're you, right. If, if you have you, Service Pack 3, you're all right. If you took an original XP and stuck it on the internet, you, it's just it's hysterical to see how quickly it it succumbs. I mean, there's still Code Red and Nimda are out there wandering right. around, right. making random pokes. So, so you're saying if it's Service Pack three, you feel comfortable with it? That that, that came out 2008. 
Uh, support ends two months after the next service pack release or at the end of the product support life cycle, whichever comes first. 24 months. So I think that also ended, but I may be wrong. It's hard to tell. This Microsoft table is very obtuse. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Review note. <laughs> it says, Review the note. All right, well, I'll move on. I just, I, I, I hesitate to say, oh, we're safe now. Nobody's, nobody's paying any attention to us. Um, John O. in Argyle, Texas, found debris in MRT. Steve, I enjoy your nice discussion of uh, Windows malicious software removal tool, MRT, in episode 293. You might add a note on the next show that, uh, where, about where MRT logs are stored. It's in C colon backslash windows backslash debug backslash MRT dot log. Oh, that's good to know. Actually, it's very cool. I, I don't think I ever noticed yeah. that MRT was leaving a log. And, and I, would, I would commend our listeners to go look at it because one of the problems with MRT is that it's so quiet. I mean, I, you don't know that it's running all the time, except this log details every single time it is launched and what it found and what it did. It's this fantastic to have that. So it's just in your Windows directory, there's a debug subdirectory underneath Windows, and there's a, there's a collection of little logs there that Microsoft builds quite, very quietly in the background. And there's an MRT, there's, there's something else related to MRT. There's two different MRT-related logs and some other things. And, you know, I thought, wow, cool. And my mind's huge. 660K was, was one of the logs because, I mean, literally wow. every time it's run... It's left a little note behind. It's like, hey, I ran on this date, and, and, you know, everything was fine. It's like, wow, very cool. Extremely useful. Yeah. Logs, as every uh, security guru knows, are your best friend. Oh, yes. And that's immediately what hackers modify. <laughs> as soon as they get in there, they to go. Remove, to remove trails. Take, yes. the log, take down the log. Uh, question eight. Craig in Chicago wants you to help put pressure on Yahoo. Hi, Steve and Leo. Steve, I've been with you on SpinRight since the mid-'80s. Yeah, and uh, yes, I've used it many, many times and have referred SpinRight to many over the years. I need to ask you to a favor. I've been a Yahoo user for way too many years, and I have for the last five years been sending them requests to go SSL for the uh, entire session, as Google and now Facebook does. Uh, but apparently they just don't care. If you could talk about this and ask all who have Yahoo accounts to demand... They get their act together. There's no reason for them at this point to keep their customers at such a high level of risk. I do understand why they lost their lead. And if it weren't so entrenched, I would just move. But there's no easy way to move years of emails and other things. I do pay them for a premium service. What a joke that is. <laughs> I also pay for Yahoo, premium Yahoo Mail. I guess I pay for no SSL. So maybe if with the quality and quantity of your listeners being what it is, they might finally get the message. But, of course, after they've been deaf to the world for the past 10 years, it's probably wishful thinking. You and Leo are the best. I've been listening since the very first podcast and can't thank you enough for all you do. Signed, Craig. So I never somehow got the Yahoo fever. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, just, I guess I was using my own email server and clients, and then Google came along with Gmail, and that seemed to be an interesting, interesting enough to, to pull me into, you know, to experiment with something else. I have two observations. First, anecdotally, anytime I have 
played with fire sheep, as I had occasion to a few weeks ago, remember when Good Morning America wanted to find out about what was going on. Yeah. Um, and I went over to the UCI-located Starbucks. Mm-hmm. By far and away, the most intercepts that fire sheep finds is Yahoo. Oh, more, than, more than Facebook. I would have expected Facebook. Yeah. But Yahoo just pops up like crazy hmm. and... Obviously, it's non-SSL. That's the point. That's the problem. Is that these credentials can be stolen because Yahoo is non-SSL, and as a consequence of Craig's note, I thought, well, okay, maybe I could recommend that he use one of the Force HTTPS solutions. We know that our friends, the EFF, have HTTPS everywhere, and there is something called Force HTTPS. Turns out, Yahoo resists that. It is. It is specifically mentioned that, for example, HTTPS everywhere from the EFF cannot do its magic on Yahoo. Yahoo fights it. So presumably, I'm sure, you are secure doing your, during your login. But as we know, the, the whole deal with FireSheep is that it grabs your cookie, um, which, is not, which is still being sent to keep you authenticated during a non-SSL post-login period during which time it's possible to easily um, grab the session because it's only represented by that, that cookie token and impersonate the user. So, so even if you Craig, have an SSL login, it doesn't matter. Correct. Because the, the person using FireSheep on the, in the counter over there could just be you. Right. And I did see some people posting in Yahoo. I mean, Craig is not alone in, wish, in recognizing that Yahoo not offering SSL is really a problem. And so, um, you know, as, as much voice as this podcast gives us, Leo, I'm glad to raise this because this needs to be fixed. It, you know, Yahoo should either go away or fix it. Yahoo is the, um, now I understand, Yahoo is the number one place People report getting their email uh, account hijacked, ah. and those—that's the one where you get the email from somebody you you thought was your friend with with pertinent uh, uh, comments and in the e information I, in the email that only your friend would know. Saying, uh, in my case, it was our gardener. Uh, oh I got, yeah, I got you told robbed us in England, yep. and I got my lost my passport, credit cards. Please send me a thousand bucks so I can get home, and I'll pay you back the minute I get home. And uh, that was a Yahoo account that had been hijacked, and I've often wondered. Well, is it a bad secret question? Is it a bad password? Now I'm starting to think it's FireSheep. Yeah, or, well, or, I mean, FireSheep made this way more easy, but it has always been possible. Right. I mean, anytime you did packet sniffing in an open Wi-Fi, you would see all of this Yahoo nonsense going but by. But you wouldn't get the password, because that is, that is SSL. True, but you do get the cookie... That that then right. allows you if you just start if you just start using that cookie it thinks you're the the legitimate logged in person. So you're sitting in a coffee shop next to somebody you use Fire Sheep you're able to look at their email read enough of it to get some pertinent details, and send an email yep. to everybody in their address book. You don't need to be able to log in after that. And you and you, you can send it as them when you right. send it you're sending it from right. their account. So now when somebody calls me and that has happened to them I will say I will say I know exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost certainly Fire Sheep. Yeah, and I haven't looked num recently at the download count, but it was 1.3 million copies of Fire Sheep. Right. 1.3 million copies. Yeah. And again, when I've turned it on in a you know in a active location, I see more Yahoo people 
than anything else. Right. Somebody's saying there's fish. You could also be fished. That's true. You could get a phishing email that says, this is Yahoo. Somebody's been accessing your account. Please log in and change your password, which would be also another way to capture it. Yeah. Um, usually, uh, my experience with FireSheep is you can impersonate the person, but changing the password almost, I don't know about Yahoo, but I would guess almost everybody says, give me your password before I change the password. Yes. So FireSheep users, I don't think in most cases anyway, if it's a, I mean, <laughs> can change your password. They just can see, they can just be you for a while. Yeah, and that's yeah. bad enough. Bad enough. David M. in Seattle, Washington says, we're overdoing the VoIP cracking article. We're giving him too much credit. We're going to talk about that just in a second. I just want to real quickly, before this show is over, because we only have two more questions, remind you, mailroute.info, if you're a spam fighter, if you're uh, running a business email server and you've got to kill the spam, yeah, you could get a very expensive device from companies that we have recently mentioned on this show, but... MailRoute will do it all for you at an incredibly low cost, as little as $2 per user per month. Uh, and they do a better job than anybody. I've been using them for seven years now. Millions of emails I never even saw that were spam. It's the best. And the new MailRoute, they're adding some really nice features. I want you to check it out. 10% off if you go to this URL. Try it today. MailRoute.info. That's all I have to say. Question numero neuf. You can see the whole article at cs.unc.edu uh, slash tilde Fabian. He's talking about this VoIP cracking uh, thing, that, which was so, we just loved it because it was so clever. Yes. He, so he's talking, he's referring to the original research paper. What you're failing to note is that the system as is has 50% accuracy for the words and phrases in its list. You said that. This is not the same as the ability to discern 50% of the conversation. Ah, that's a distinction. Yes, and a very important distinction. Right. That's hype. So he's referring to a figure in the article. I'll put, I, I put a link in the show notes if you want to see it. Uh, Wiki.twit.tv. I'm sure you'll have a link in your show notes, Steve, at grc.com. Uh, figure 11 is titled, Performance on Selected Phrases. All this setup can do is look for select phrases and words... Even the author's evil scenario means the villain has to create a rainbow table of words. One can't use a dictionary pronunciation to guide because people don't speak right. I know we security folks are pushed to be paranoid in order to balance our society's lack of logic, but I think you've taken this to the hype level, which I'm defining as past what the data supports. Love the show and my spin right license, David, in Seattle. That's, that's a very good point. Absolutely. And David, thank you. You're right. Um, remember that we just, we referred to this again when somebody was concerned that that his that it was possible then to eavesdrop on his his VoIP system that he'd set up for his right. company right. a long time ago. And so it's it's I mean, and and in retrospect, it's like, duh, I mean, clearly that this isn't if, if all you've got is is compression rates. And you're basing you're basing your um, discrimination on how much compression different audio phrases get. Then, uh, what they said was they're able to determine with fifty percent accuracy of the phrases they know what those phrases are after they've been compressed based on how much they were compressed, which is entirely different from saying they they. They can, you know, transcribe an arbitrary conversation off of through VOIP. So I did want everyone to relax a lot 
Um, this, this was interesting technology, very clever, but it has a long way to go before it compromises anybody's uh, encrypted privacy. Very good to know. Our last question, Steve, and it's some really cool news. <laughs> There's an app for that. In case you haven't seen it, says an anonymous listener, your show, Security Now, has an app on the iTunes store, I didn't know this, called Security Now Catalog. It came out last Friday. No, I have nothing to do with it. I just figured you'd be amused and flattered to know this. It's in the education section. Actually, Tom Chisholm, or Tom Chrisholm, I guess. I don't know if he wrote this or wrote the uh, wrote the app. Well, uh, no, he wrote the app. He wrote the app. It is if you. I just I just Googled iTunes Security Now catalog, and it brought me to the page. Um, so what it is it's is a buck ninety nine. But I don't mind. He's making a little money on that. That's great. It, yep, it's two bucks, and it is every. It, it automatically updates itself, so it'll be current. It'll stay current weekly, and it is. Apparently, direct access to all of the podcasts, all 296 podcasts, and transcripts. He's got, it, it links in transcripts. I don't know if he searches transcripts. That'd be very cool if it, you know, like had compressed transcripts that it could search. Probably not. But he does have a search feature, and it's both the iPhone and the iPad. I'm constantly receiving requests from people, for, and I know you are too, Leo, for like, could I get the first hundred podcasts, you know, you, you know, the, 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 the iTunes feed or the RSS feed, you know, only gives me the last few. I, I want to go back further. Of course, I have them all on my site. As um, we do, too. I mean, at, at, as you do. You always have access to it, but the RSS feed would get mighty big with 300 odd uh, yes. <laughs> entries in it. Yes, and so so uh, this is it looks I mean it's very simple but it's very clean. It's just it's a listing of all the podcasts which you you can search by name and you know, I presume you click on it and it downloads it. So it's just a way to it's the Security Now catalog app for for iOS. Wow. So thank you Tom. And thank you anonymous listener for letting me know cuz I don't know you know, I mean, we would found out about it sooner or later, but it was just last Friday, so it came right to our attention, which is cool. And and I hope that Tom sells some because that would be great. <laughs> and Tom, and maybe he'll make he'll make it better. Email me because if you want to write an app for every one of our shows, I'd love to help you do that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Every show should have its own app. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. And if you you know, I mean, of course, you can subscribe to any podcast, but if but I love this idea that every one of the shows. Uh, had its own app. If you were a really big fan of that show, like Security Now, you would you'd always. I think this is great. It's got a nice little icon, which he obviously grabbed off. It's our of. album art, but that's fine. Yeah, it says catalog instead of audio or video on the right. That's Tom. You've got my wholehearted thanks and support, uh, and I would love to talk to you. So please, I presume he listens, or he wouldn't have done this. Good point. Email Leo at twit.tv, and I want to commission you to write one of these for every one of our shows. I imagine once you've written the first one, it's all the same, and we use we. I mean, it's very similar naming and so forth. Steve, I have one more question from Leo to you. <laughs> I got to send you uh, two emails. I received, uh, and I just can't figure out if it's a spoof or not. Hmm. I received last week, and everybody said, "Well, you, sh you ought to ask. Uh, you ought to ask uh, Steve." I received an email from the president of one of the world's largest advertising companies, uh, Publicis, 
uh, last week saying, uh, we would like you to come to the EG8 summit in, uh, in uh, Paris. By the way, this is May 25th and 26th or something like that. It's coming, 26th, 27th, coming up like in a month. Wow, yeah. Um, as the guest of President Sarkozy, uh, because we're putting together a panel of people who are internet luminaries to guide the G8 summit, which is a summit of the top, the leaders of the top eight nations in the world, uh, as to information and communications technologies, the internet as a, uh, as a force in economic growth and so forth. And I thought, yeah, right. He said, you'll get an invitation for President Sarkozy soon. Well, I've got the invitation. <laughs> Did what, but it was emailed, and this makes me suspicious. Wouldn't the president mail it to me? I'm a little worried about that. I, so I want to send you the, uh, these uh, messages. Maybe you can look at the headers. I'd love to look at the headers. I'll tell you what I find. Sure. I, it just doesn't feel right to me. Well, I mean, clearly, this is not a come on that would work for pretty much anybody but you. I mean, it's no, and there a, is you know, going to be this forum. I just, I just feel like maybe somebody's pulling my leg. They, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Uh, the so GA. You need to talk, clearly, you need to talk to somebody before you know. I got to call him before I buy a ticket. Make your plane <laughs> reservations. Yeah. Uh, President Sarkozy is the president of the group of eight countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the U.K., and the U.S. Uh, and they're creating, a, convening an extraordinary invitation-only meeting of the, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, the best and the brightest technology leaders from the G8 and the rest of the world. It's an EG8 forum. It'll be in Paris, preceding the G8 summit in Deauville. Wow. Actually, I can just say, the, the G8 summit is the 26th and 27th, so it's a few days. It's the 24th and 25th. Uh, at the at the at the at, at the Tuileries, <laughs> invitation only. I think I should go if it's real. Oh my God! Of course you have to go. I wouldn't have any choice. No. But wow. I just I can't believe it's real. I'll send you the emails. You could tell me if the headers make any sense. I'd love to. I'll track them down. I'll see what they say. You know why I believe it? The uh, as far as I could tell, the header that came from uh, uh, Maurice Levy, the president of Publicis Group, was sent from a Lotus Notes account. And I don't think any hacker uses Lotus Notes. <laughs> Good point. Good that doesn't point. seem right. But maybe somebody got these and intercepted them and reformatted them and sent them. I don't know. I guess I should call. Maybe I call. I'll call Nick, the president of France. I'll call him. Yeah. See, yeah hey, ring. Nick, baby. Como so va? Yeah, he'd probably be going off to a fancy wedding what's, here before What's long. happening? What's happening? Did you really mean to invite me to that party? They don't want me. Steve, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. As always, if you want to find out more about this show, uh, get the show notes, the transcriptions, the, the uh, actual audio, including 16 kilobit for the bandwidth impaired. We're getting very sensitive to that. I think we're going to have to start doing that for all our shows as these new bandwidth caps are implemented. Mm. Uh, go to grc.com. That's a great place to ask your future questions. We'll do this again in a couple of episodes, grc.com slash feedback. And by the way, when you're at GRC, might as well just, you know, plunk down, uh, what is it, 90, 80, 90 bucks for uh, Spinrite? Yep. Well worth it. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance recovery uh, utility, and of course, Steve's bread and butter. GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. Steve is on Twitter at SGGRC. See? Yep, it's a, it's a, I'm enjoying 
notifying people on short notice of things that happen. And boy, it's becoming a really fantastic resource for me. Our listeners know that they can just drop me a short little blurb when something happens to make sure that I know. And uh, it's just great. I accumulate things during the week and then uh, deal with them during our podcast. Well, uh, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, this is a, obviously, if you, if you follow security at all and you follow Twitter feeds from security experts, this is a must follow. SGGRC. Steve, always a pleasure. We'll see you next week. Uh, our usual time, by the way, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at live.twit.tv. Thanks, Leo. Talk to you then. Take care. Security.